tonight straight from the source. Hunter Biden claiming Republicans are trying to kill him and destroy a presidency after that new indictment. How the president's son plans to fight back against nine new charges. His lawyer is here with us tonight, so stick around for that. Plus, Donald Trump better watch what he says and whom he attacks, including potential witnesses, after a federal gag order is mostly reinstated. And it has just happened again in another red state with a near total abortion ban. A woman suing to terminate her pregnancy, this time at eight weeks. Is a groundswell of these cases coming? I'm Pamela Brown, and this is The Source. Good evening. Caitlin will be back with you on Monday. Tonight, President Biden is dodging questions on the nine new tax-related charges against his son, Hunter. And the White House is refusing to comment, only saying Mr. Biden, quote, loves his son and supports him as he continues to rebuild his life. Hunter, however, is lashing out at House Republicans today after his second indictment in three months, with a bold claim saying that they want to kill him to take down his father. They are trying to, in the in in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In their most base way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me, knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle. Well, Republicans have been relentless in their pursuit of Hunter through their own investigations, but this indictment didn't come from the GOP. It came from President Biden's own Justice Department, a special counsel who was appointed. The younger Biden stands accused of engaging in a four-year scheme to avoid paying at least $1.4 million in taxes on income and instead funding a lavish lifestyle of drugs and escorts, including spending nearly $700,000 on payments to, quote, various women and nearly 200,000 on adult entertainment between 2016 and 2019. These charges in California are in addition to the gun-related charges filed in Delaware. So how does his team plan to fight all of this? Well, let's get straight to the source with Hunter Biden's own attorney, Abby Lowell. Abby, thanks for being here. I'm Lou, good to be here. So I've been going back through the plea agreement, the statement of facts, and didn't your client admit in open court to not paying the same amount of taxes for these exact years that are in the indictment? Not exactly, Pamela. In the plea agreement that was negotiated and filed back in June, what Hunter was willing to do was to admit, like millions of Americans, that he did not pay his taxes on time, that they were the taxes due, but that was only amount of a delay, not what happened today. Let me put this in perspective since you asked about the last. Let me show you. On June the 20th, the U.S. attorney in Delaware thought after a five-year painstaking investigation that the appropriate resolution was to file two misdemeanor late payment charges in a piece of paper that was barely two pages long. Yesterday, that same U.S. attorney has now done a 56-page, nine-count indictment no facts have changed from the years that he's been investigating after five years. The law has not changed. So what people need to stop and ask is, why was this okay in June? And this is what he's doing now. The only change that has occurred has been the enormous pressure put on by Republican members of Congress, former President Trump, in order to demand that something happen about Hunter Biden. That's what's different between then 
and yesterday. And it's certainly fair to make the point of, of the gap between the plea deal, the two misdemeanor charges, and the three felony charges, and mis uh, six misdemeanors, and the indictment. But as you well know, and I, I know you've done countless of plea deals for clients, if a defendant pleads guilty as part of the deal, the whole point is to get leniency, as, as I'm sure that you know. And this deal fell through, right? This plea deal fell through. Um, and, and do lawyers for Hunter Biden take any responsibility for not putting in writing in that plea deal that he would get immunity uh, for any other charges moving forward? Because that was one of the big sticking points of why this plea deal fell through. If you through. look back the five months ago when all this happened, there's blame that mostly falls on the part of the prosecutors. It was their paper. They wrote it. It was their design. It was their structure. And when the judge asked questions, rather than defending what they had agreed to, they ran away from it. But let's also put in perspective what happened yesterday as well as then. Now, where's the fairness, justice, and decency in this? The charges in this new tax indictment talk about a period where Hunter was at the lowest ebb of his addiction. And like people in that regard, and I know everybody in America either has somebody in their family or friends who suffer from addiction, he certainly did things that he's not proud of. But wait, what happened since? He got himself sober in 2019. And he paid all of the taxes that are owed in this indictment more than two years ago with interest and penalties. Nobody in that position would be charged the way he was yesterday. Nobody. You would admit as, as an attorney that um, having an addiction wouldn't absolve you of potential criminal acts. And, and the plea agreement that he agreed to does talk about the fact that in that four-year period, he made millions of dollars, he was doing business deals, he had several clients he was representing as a lawyer. So if he was able to do that, why shouldn't he also, like every other American, pay his taxes on time? And in that plea deal, and I just wanna read part of it for you, Abby, to get your response, of which, again, he agreed to. It said, um, at the time his 2018 tax payment was due, Biden continued to have substantial income and the ability to pay his tax liability. By late May, Biden has spent almost the entire sum on personal expenses, including large cash withdrawals, payments to or on behalf of his children, credit card balances, and car payments for his Porsche. He admitted in court, and again, you can't he use this. He didn't admit in court this was a piece of paper that didn't get filed because the prosecutor walked away from a deal. But I want to point out, again, looking at what you just read from, Mm -hmm. Every year, millions of Americans are late in their taxes. Hunter, as part of his accepting responsibility, was willing to say, I did that. But the most important part of what you're not saying and what happened yesterday is that when he became sober, what is one of the first things he did? Paid all of his taxes, paid the penalties and interest. And the most important thing is when people are in his position and you want to talk about what he did and every other American, mm -hmm. will you say pay on time? When the IRS says that you made a mistake or you're late or you do something, mm -hmm. do you know what they do? They audit you. They talk to you. They ask you questions. They ask you for backup. What did the government do in this case? They charged him in a 56-page, nine-count indictment with no notice and no warning. That's what's different. What's different is you, me, and the people you're saying would have been treated differently. And there's just a very easy explanation. I want to just go back to the basics. I wanna, June 20th, and I pick this apart. yesterday, what happened in between? Okay. All the Republican pressure. 
And it's fair to make that point that this is politically motivated. As his defense attorney, look at this and look at that. A couple of things, though. You talk about he got sober, he paid it. Well, in the plea deal, the statement of facts it talks about in May of 2019, he got sober. Then past the October extension deadline, November, he started to pay it back. But the government is alleging that he filed false tax returns, that he made up deductions that weren't accurate. So I'll let you respond to that. But also, you're talking about the average American here. They wouldn't be treated this way. Well, what about the more than 2,600 cases for similar crimes brought last year? I just, I've got this case that I just printed out from two weeks ago in New Jersey. It was a tax case treated like a criminal matter for less than the $1.4 million. I don't know the case you're talking about. I can tell you this. We have presented to the U.S. Attorney and the Justice Department the statistics that you're looking at, I suppose, but more importantly, we went through the cases. I can tell you that in the District of Delaware and other places, a person who has filed late, paid on when it was then paid and full with interest, et cetera, and had no other issues about them and made mistakes that both went to his advantage and went to his disadvantage. That same tax return that they're saying has deductions that shouldn't have been, has income that he should not have claimed as income. And when that happens, I am telling you, the result in the tax division of the U.S. Department of Justice is not to bring a standalone misdemeanor count let alone misdemeanor counts, let alone what they did yesterday. It is usually resolved in a civil fashion. One of the things we presented to the government when we met, when his prior lawyers met, was to point out an example. There is a partner at a law firm in Washington, D.C., who didn't pay $7.8 million at all, never filed. And what happened to that partner in a law firm was allowed to resolve it civilly. There are all kinds of examples. But again, I tell you, it doesn't matter what you or I think. What matters is what David Weiss thought on June 20th. And on June 20th, David Weiss, after five years, thought a two misdemeanor late payment was the way to resolve this case. In exchange case. for a guilty plea, we should note, which is often to a plea a deal gives to, to leniency, though. As you, I, I just think that context is important for people viewers who would may not, not go to jail pleading works. to a misdemeanor of late filing after they had already paid their taxes two years later. That just wouldn't happen. Well, let me ask you this, um, because certainly reading through the indictment, first of all, it relies a lot on his memoir. And I'm wondering if um, you stand by everything he wrote in his memoir or if you will argue. Everything he wrote in his memoir, it's his memoir. But uh, okay. it, it, this is what we will stand by. In the years of oh, this hold on. indictment. I want to follow sorry, up. Please. Yeah, let me ask. Okay, okay so, so, so sounds like you, it's a memoir. That's his accounting. You're not going to contest well, that. Well, I don't know what part you want to refer to. Well, the indictment, throughout the indictment, it talks about you know, how he was How he using... was addicted, how he spent money lavishly, how he made the most unwise decisions about how he spent his money, his addiction, his uh, junkies, the quote escorts. Right, and how he, how instead of paying taxes, he was spending millions of dollars Do you know somebody who's personal... been addicted and somebody who makes bad choices Look, and nobody who understands? I'm talking from a legal perspective. Are you going to get in front of the judge in a courtroom and argue about his addiction as his defense? Because many people have addictions and they don't just get off the hook because of that addiction. It doesn't Indeed, absolve actually, you. Actually, and if he is when able willfulness... to have clients, according to the Sorry. plea deal, and make millions of dollars and do business those four years. I mean, are you saying he was addicted and high and out of his mind for four years straight and couldn't pay his taxes? I am saying that in the period of time of this indictment, he was at the worst part of his addiction. I am saying that the priorities that he made between spending money lavishly and figuring out how to get his taxes paid on time is the mistake that he's admitted. But I'm telling you, what's the result of those mistakes? And the result of those mistakes in every other circumstance would not be a 56-page, nine-count indictment for somebody who paid their taxes in full two years before this indictment was brought in the circumstances. 
That's the bottom line. And more importantly, treating people same, no matter what their name is, is key. And I don't want to be harping on it, but I want you and all of your colleagues and people who think something bad happened that should be addressed to have the U.S. attorney answer the question. Why was two misdemeanors with the possibility of no jail with a plea agreement the right result in June? And why are nine counts about the same okay. events what he did yesterday? Tell me what happened and, in between. And we've, we've Other covered than that ground Chairman in our viewers. Comer, Chairman Jordan, Chairman Smith, former President Trump. That's the difference. And you mentioned Comer, and I want to get to him. Let's listen to what Chairman Comer said today in the wake of this latest indictment. And my concern is that Weiss may have uh, indicted Hunter Biden to protect him from ah, having to be deposed yes. in, the, in the House Oversight Committee yes. on Wednesday. In- so what do you say to that? Will Hunter Biden so, comply hey, with the subpoena to testify well, on December 13th? The day that I can make sense of the things that Chairman Comer says is the day that I should be nominated for some great educational prize. I would tell you, if I understand what he's saying, is that the special counsel, now used to be the U.S. attorney, decided to bring these counts to help protect Hunter Biden in some fashion or another. If that's what he's saying, that almost is ridiculous coming out of his mouth as it is for me to repeat it. If he's saying that somehow the U.S. attorney did this to protect the U.S. attorney, I'd agree with the chairman. He's doing this because he took such unbearable pressure and heat and criticism on June when we did the deal that he reneged. And now he's going to show over and over again that he is not going to make another mistake that subjects him to that kind of political pressure. If that's what Chairman Comer means, I might agree with him. And and you say he reneged. Both parties went into court that day with the plea deal at hand, ready to agree to it. The judge raised questions, right? And there was the the, the immunity question was really a big sticking point. But I want to- But it was the prosecutors who right after that- But lawyers also defend their clients and usually put everything in writing and make sure that everything's locked in. We use the word reneged. And I want to be clear that the entity who reneged on the deal the next day or the next week was the prosecutor who literally communicated and said the deal's off. Okay. Not that it was tweaked to deal with the judge's questions, but it was off. Okay, let me quickly follow up on the question about will he show up for the congressional deposition on December 13th. Oh, you're asking about what's going to happen next week? Yes. Uh, Hunter and I and his advisors are thinking about what we have exchanged with the committee and we'll make the decision in the next days before that date comes so you to have us. No, no decision yet as of right no. now. Last question for you. Um, you've making, you're making the argument that this is basically political persecution, that this is unfair for, for Hunter Biden, your client, because of his last name. Um, should, should he be pardoned? Will your client apply for a pardon? Oh, that is just so far down the road to even remotely believe. It's not even in the lexicon of what we're talking about. So when we say political pressure, to put a finer point on it, in the District of Delaware and most places, no person has ever been charged with the gun charges that Hunter was charged with unless it was part of a crime, multiple guns, felony record, never happened. Nobody who did what Hunter did with the issues that he had at the time, who paid his taxes two years ago and was part of this arrangement with the government, has ever gone from one and a half pages of a misdemeanor to nine counts and 56 pages, including felonies. It just didn't happen. All right, and I'm gonna, I'll let you read this case from a couple weeks ago too, um, of other cases where an American didn't pay taxes and it was treated as a, as a criminal matter. I'm not suggesting but that I there's know, none, but, but I I'll s- tell you what, I'll come back after you give me your case and I'll show you how the cases that should be compared will show that the person who's being treated differently is not the person in your case, okay. but Hunter. All right, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much, Abby Lowell, appreciate Glad it.
Up next, a second gag order is now back on Donald Trump with some tweaks. A federal appeals court ruling, what he says, has real-world consequences. And Israel is finally talking more about those masses of men detained and stripped down to their underwear in Gaza. Where they've been taken? And we're going to talk to someone who says his brother was among them, and he says unfairly targeted. Well, tonight, Donald Trump once again told by a court he has to watch what comes out of his mouth and out of his keyboard. This ruling in the federal case involving his attempt to overturn the election. In the end, Trump can't talk about witnesses, the prosecutors, the court staff or their family members. The one change he can still badmouth the special counsel, Jack Smith himself, as well as criticize President Biden and the Department of Justice. The court found, quote, Mr. Trump's documented pattern of speech and its demonstrated real-time, real-world consequences pose a significant and imminent threat to the functioning of the criminal trial process in this case. Here to help us understand what this all means is former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. All right, so what do you make of the fact that this is the second court in recent weeks to say Trump can't say what he wants to say about people outside of court? Um, I think those courts are all getting it right. <clears throat> he shouldn't be able to say anything that he wants. And they're making a really good faith effort to try and balance the constitutional issue. I think there's a little bit too much controversy directed on the constitutional issue because this is not really a case about his First Amendment right to speech. We're talking about his conduct outside the courtroom. And it's inside in the evidence that should really count. And the fact that he is being told that he can't insult or intimidate <clears throat> people, that's normal to control a case. And to me, he doesn't get extra First Amendment rights just because he's running for president. It needs to be balanced, but there's nothing extra about that. The court notes uh, that Trump is running for office, but quote, Mr. Trump is also an indicted criminal defendant and he must stand trial in a courtroom under the same procedures that govern all other criminal defendants. That is what the rule of law means. Is Donald Trump being treated like other defendants here? Absolutely not. But, okay. okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. There are so many people who would already be in jail for any kind of this behavior. And it's not even really a traditional gag order. I mean, a real gag order would be nobody gets to say anything about it. Um, in that shooting case in Michigan, the parents are under such a gag order. They couldn't even come to that sentencing hearing. That would be called for because of how volatile the issue is. But the courts have bent over backwards to make sure that he gets to speak. And with all due respect to the D.C. Circuit, I don't understand even the carve-out logically for him to attack Jack Smith. I mean, they're saying, look, somehow that's political, but if you say anything to a witness or staff of the court that's not political, that's too fine a line. They should really just, if they really want to treat him like everyone else, then quit talking about the case. <laughs> yeah, they, they argue, the judges argued in their filing that Jack Smith is, is, he is a top government official and that he is up there aligned with the institution of DOJ. So let's look ahead and look at Monday. Donald Trump is expected to testify in the civil fraud case against him and his company in New York. Last time, things went off the rails at times. His own lawyer is telling him not to testify because of the gag order. In that case, what are the pitfalls for him potentially? Uh, it's primarily that he's not very good on direct examination, which is more friendly. He'll tend to meander some. And if he's crossed, then it's always tough for anyone to be cross-examined. With his lack of discipline testifying, I think it's going to go very poorly for him. You know, his lawyer's remark about not testifying because of the gag order, that <clears throat> does not make any sense. I mean, the reason not to testify is you don't want to incriminate yourself. You want to, don't want to be um, at odds with yourself. Not the gag order. No one's going to say he's violating the gag order for testifying in this case, that doesn't make any sense. Also, he's testifying because it's a civil trial. You can draw an adverse inference 
from it. Um, and I think he really wants to have a platform to speak this way, and it kind of dovetails in with his political strategy. All right, Shan Wu, thank you very much for offering your insights. Up next, it was a landmark victory in a post-Roe America. A 20-week pregnant woman whose child would certainly die sued for the right to have an abortion in deep red Texas and won. Now her state is trying to get that ruling overturned. Plus, there's a new case cropping up in my home state of Kentucky. We're going to discuss after the break. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, tonight, two women are fighting for abortion access in states with some of the nation's strictest anti-abortion laws. In Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton tonight is asking the state Supreme Court to intervene after a local judge granted a court-ordered abortion to a woman suing her to end her pregnancy. Her unborn baby almost certainly would not survive outside the womb. Paxton is also threatening the woman's doctor, saying that if the court-ordered abortion is performed, the doctor could still face major civil and criminal penalties. And yet another case tonight, this time an anonymous woman in Kentucky filed an emergency class action lawsuit asking a judge to allow her to terminate her pregnancy as well. Joining us now is Bridget Emery, the lead attorney in the Kentucky's Jane Doe case. She is also the deputy director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Thanks so much for coming on. First off, Bridget, if you would, what can you tell us about where this case stands right now? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So today the ACLU sued Kentucky on behalf of Jane Doe and a class of all pregnant Kentuckians who are prohibited from ending their pregnancies in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We just filed our complaint today and we have filed a motion for class certification and a motion for her to proceed under a pseudonym. And that's all we have done so far today. How much is viability of the fetus a factor here? Um, you know, obviously in the Texas case, the woman is saying, look, my, my baby wouldn't survive outside the womb. I want an abortion. How much is that central to this case? The only details that we are sharing about Jane Doe is that she is a resident of Kentucky. She's eight weeks pregnant and she's seeking an abortion. And that's really it because we really need to protect her privacy, as you can imagine. So that's really all we can say about this particular woman. She is angry that she is forced to continue this pregnancy and not be able to terminate it in Kentucky. And the Kentucky ban on abortion has harmed countless people, prohibiting them from accessing essential health care. Was your case in Kentucky filed in response to the Texas ruling issued just yesterday? How much did that impact the action here? It was actually the timing is somewhat of a coincidence. So we brought this case 10 months after the Kentucky Supreme Court held in a prior case that we brought on behalf of healthcare providers that healthcare providers couldn't raise the constitutional rights of their patients. That was a huge departure from 50 years of precedent from many other courts. The Kentucky Supreme Court did say that patients could raise their rights. And so they said we could come back to court with a patient. We've been looking for 10 months for someone who was brave enough to bring this case, and we finally found Jane Doe, who was willing to sue alongside us. 
You heard the warning that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton gave the Texas woman's doctor that if that doctor performs the court order procedure, you know, there could be some serious legal ramifications. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, can that doctor really face legal ramifications here? It is outrageous what Ken Paxton is doing, and I defer to the attorneys litigating that case from the Center for Reproductive Rights. I just think it's absolutely outrageous that um, an officer of the court, um, the attorney general, would defy a court order, would ignore the rule of law, and it's just so fundamentally cruel to the woman involved as well. Do you see these cases as a, a test for other legal action in more states that have these restricted abortion laws? Is this just the beginning? Well, we and other organizations have a number of lawsuits um, pending right now challenging different abortion bans and abortion restrictions, and those can take different forms. Most of them are on behalf of healthcare providers that can raise the rights of their patients. Uh, these cases um, on behalf of individual women, class actions, is something we've seen even before Roe versus Wade, oh, sorry, before Roe versus Wade was overturned, um, and perhaps we will continue to see more of it as well. All right, Bridget Amory, thank you so much. Thank you so much for and having just me. Just ahead. Yep, just ahead. The images, they are striking. Rows of men detained in Gaza, stripped down to their underwear, wearing blindfolds and Israel's hunt for terrorists. My next guest says he saw his brother in those pictures, but claims he has no ties to Hamas. Other members of his family also killed in an airstrike. What he wants to say to the world up next. Well, tonight, the U.S. stands isolated at the U.N. Security Council after using its veto power to block a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in war-torn Gaza. Thirteen nations were in favor of the resolution, while Britain abstained. The U.S. sided with Israel's position that a permanent ceasefire before fully destroying Hamas would only cause more war. Across Gaza, as the humanitarian situation deteriorates, the IDF says it is escalating its operation against Hamas. A new video shows an Israeli flag raised in the middle of the symbolic Palestine Square in Gaza City. The IDF also says it tried to rescue two hostages overnight. The battle left two Israeli soldiers severely wounded. Meantime, Israel is speaking out about those jarring images circulating online. They show dozens of men in Gaza blindfolded and stripped down to their underwear as they're held by the Israeli military. Now, Israel says it is detaining military-aged men found in evacuation zones where they have been urged to leave for more than a month. The IDF says the men who remain in those areas are being treated as suspected terrorists. But CNN has found that at least some of the men are civilians with no known affiliation to militant groups. In fact, our next guest, who has been on this show before, talking about his family's struggle to survive in Gaza, says he saw his brother and nephew in those images. He says they have nothing to do with Hamas. Hani Al-Madhun also lost six members of his family in an airstrike two weeks ago. Hanny, uh, thank you for coming on. Of course, we should know you are the philanthropy um, director for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. I'm so sorry um, for the loss of your family members and all that you are going through, though we are relieved to hear that your other brother and your nephew, who you've identified in these videos, they are back with your family. I know you've been in touch with them about what had happened. Take us back to the moment they were detained. Explain to us what they went through. Thank you for having me, Pam. I, I wish we were talking about happier things. It's been too long, you know, 62 days of uh, extreme madness. Uh, yesterday morning, I woke up to pleas of my sister. She's asking me if I can call the Red Cross to figure out what happened with my brother. 
She had not uh, heard from him. She's heard rumors they've been rounded up with a bunch of men in the family. And, you know, I tried to look online for these Telegram channels we follow. And then, oops, I see my brother there in his boxer. And it just takes me back. Like, I'm, I'm baffled by this because I know my brother. He's my baby brother. And this way, they dragged him from his home with his uh, children. He was hanging out with his two daughters, Noor and Sham. And uh, IDF identifies them as uh, Hamas combatants. I assure you, that's not true. The Israelis are so confused right now. And I feel it's just like, uh, it's unfortunate. It's my little brother who's not even in the best uh, physical shape to run uh, two meters without calling for a taxi. So, and then my nephew, who's 27 years old and who tried to leave Gaza years ago and drowned in the Mediterranean. And that's the people they're arresting. And I, in fact, I know 12 people in that picture. I'm related to them. And I know these guys probably, you know, they're going to hate me for this, but they're not the sharpest tool in the box. And they were rounded and marketed to the Israeli side. Oh, these are Hamas fighters surrendering. They're neither fighters. They're not surrendering. They're just civilians who were there with their families trying to survive this. And unfortunately, our home was destroyed two weeks ago when the airstrike killed my brother and his family. So that's why they're sheltering in that part, because that's uh, the only standing house that our family has right now. And we're lucky to have it. But it was a nightmare. You know, you look at your brother and you feel a little bit violated, betrayed, like, this is my brother. What are you doing? You know, and then you hear the Israeli talking points and then, oops, this is this is a whole level of crazy. Fortunately, though, you were released after they discovered that they have nothing to do with anything. In fact, all the men I know from the family were released because they have nothing to do with anything. But remember, there is a lot of trauma from this for anybody who's watching, especially for my mom who's lost her son. Her son is being arrested and taken to unknown place. And it just, it's a lot, you don't recover from this. This is just a, not about justice. This feels like more about revenge. I want to talk a little bit more about this this situation in particular, because Israel says it's trying to figure out who the civilians are, who the terrorists are, and that they're doing this because they are finding middle-aged men in evacuation zones, leading them to believe they could be suspect, suspected terrorists. As you know, their state of mission is to destroy Hamas. But they say once it's determined that they're not terrorists, they let them go, as they did your family members. What do you say to that? Well, I should write him a thank you card for humiliating my family and just, you know, for whatever fears they have. You know, why is my family in the north? They don't have anybody in the south. And we've had family members who got killed in those safe zones. So they said, why bother? You die here, you die there. Unfortunately, the humiliation they've subjected these men to. My brother has seizures and they had him naked in the street and they put him on the beach in the winter naked, taking pictures of him, verifying who he is, and then they released him after they've, uh, you know, roughed him up a little bit. And that's unfortunate because you don't make friends this way, you know, or they, you know, they, they think I'm not going to get into the Hamas mentality and the fighting, but this is sad because this is my brother and my cousins and we got scared, worried, sick. And when they released him, you know, after this abuse, we feel this is, this is a whole new level, you know, our, we lost our brother. Last time I was in this show, you know, I had uh, three brothers. Now I have two. And the Israelis abducted one yesterday from the safety of their home. And all of a sudden, he's a Hamas combatant. That could not be farther from the truth. He's a shopkeeper, a dad, and a guy who can't read or write. Imagine, you know, that's, you know, that's what the target is. And I'm happy he's released. 
uh, obviously, you know, this is he's lucky. But I wonder about the other people who mis get misidentified. This is not a good situation. We get scared. Worried sick. We try to call the Red Cross. I've shared the news with anybody who would listen, including folks in the White House. And obviously, no calm is there. And you mentioned you lost family members. Six family members of your family were killed. You just learned about that a couple of weeks ago. Another brother, his wife, and their four children. We can't imagine the depths of the pain that your family is going through. What do you want to tell the world about who they were and how they should be remembered? If we do not have a ceasefire, we're not have any opportunity to grieve our dead. We've lost our homes. We've lost our life saving in those homes. It's been enough of destruction. I'm not sure these images maybe give the Israelis some sense of satisfaction that they have some victory in Gaza. I hope they get their victory yesterday before today because the price that they're being paid by Palestinians like my brother and my family. My brother did not deserve to die. His boys, his girls, they wanted to play basketball. They wanted to play soccer. And unfortunately, they're never coming back to this because they were killed in an airstrike that destroyed our home. And guess what? They died thirsty. Not only that they got killed, a day before they were looking for water and they couldn't find it. And as you know, I work to support the largest humanitarian NGO. And even they, they're not able to help them or provide them flour. Unfortunately, there is a lot of good work that's been done in Gaza by these NGOs, but families are not really able to find food. I wish people would really sus support a sustainable and a durable ceasefire and obviously, it is important, and I pray for peace for my family and the safety of all those who are not involved, including my family and folks on the Israeli side as well. And we all pray for peace for you and your family. Hanny, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Pam. Well, it has been a record year for extreme weather and climate disasters in the U.S. A new poll shows most Americans really do care about climate change including a large number of Republicans, but just don't know what to do about it. So we brought in the expert. Bill Nye, the science guy, is here with us. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, today, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced an unprecedented 25 separate billion dollar disasters have hit the United States this year alone. A list that includes the Hawaii wildfires, Hurricane Adalia, the powerful Category 4 that slammed into northern Florida, and several tornado outbreaks that streaked across the south. The total cost? Hear this. A whopping $81 billion. New CNN polling tonight shows nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults are worried about the threat of climate change. And even more, 73% say it is time for the federal government to do something about it. And joining us now is the science guy himself, Bill Nye. Bill, thanks for your time tonight. So explain to us just how much trouble we're all really in right now. Well, everybody likes to talk about the trouble we're in and the tipping point, where there's a tipping point in climate and it's irreversible and everything would go very badly for everybody. But the latest analysis is there isn't going to be a tipping point as such. 
Instead, the climate will just get hotter and hotter and more and more extreme weather for everybody in the world unless we get to work on reducing the amount of carbon dioxide and methane we pump into the atmosphere. Well, and on that note, uh, it seems like the overwhelming, you know, there's overwhelming support for cutting that. According to the CNN poll that's up on the screen right now, uh, as you can see, that the majority want to cut those emissions in half by 2030. 95% of Democrats support it. 76% of independents support it. 50% of Republicans support it. But are you seeing this support reflected in the kind of policy we need to get to that 2030 goal? Well, everybody's talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was the name of the bill, but it carried a lot of climate actions. And then there's a couple steps forward, a couple steps back on oil drilling policies and so on. But this is this poll is great news uh, in that if we get the United States to lead the world, you know, everybody, many people involved in climate action are overseas at the Conference of the Parties 28. And this is where people try to make deals about how much emissions, uh, how much emission uh, each country would be allowed to uh, put into the atmosphere and still have a sustainable future and so on. But I claim that the United States is the most influential culture. Whatever else you might say, the United States, uh, what our values lead the world. So if the United States can get in the lead, if your poll is accurate and, and the majority of voters want the United States to take climate action, then the United States would be in the lead and we can, dare I say it, change the world. And so what's happening, I believe, is everybody is starting to be affected by extreme weather events, floods, and especially fires in the last couple of years. And it's affecting people's insurance rates. And this is affecting people's pocketbooks and it's making everybody acknowledge that we have a problem that is worthy of being addressed. So let's talk about how that problem can be solved on an individual level. Because I think that's what a lot of us wonder, what can we do as individuals to stop this? Recycling, driving less, two things. what power do we have? Go. Okay, two things. Let me just start by saying, let me disabuse us all of the notion that if you just recycle your bottles, if you just recycle your newspapers or what have you, or carpool or combine your errands, that would address climate change. It won't, that's not enough. That's not nearly enough to address climate change. We've been pumping these gases into the atmosphere. We continue to emit them at this prodigious rate as we've done for decades, for centuries. Instead, there's two things we could all do. The first one would be what we're doing right now. If we were talking about climate change, we, we talk about other very important issues, civil rights and so on, we'd be doing something about it. And the second thing everybody you could do is vote, vote. If we take the climate into account when you vote, I am not telling you for whom to vote, but take the climate into account when you vote. Now, right now, the other side, as my as people like me refer to it, is saying that they want to drill, baby, drill. We're not going to address climate change at all. It's a myth. It's a hoax and stuff. But what you have here, this poll that you've taken, shows that people don't agree with that that most people, the majority of people in the United States don't agree that climate change is not a problem and is not worthy yeah. of being addressed. Yeah. So if the majority of people take this into account, take climate into account when they vote, we can have the United States lead the world 
export our values as well as our technologies, and we can make life better for everyone. So as I always say, let's go. <laughs> All right, Bill Nye, thank you so much. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Let's change the world. Well, the House Oversight Committee now launching an investigation into the U.S. Coast Guard's documented culture of racism, hazing and assault. This comes after my investigative colleagues and I exposed the findings of reports that top service officials tried to keep concealed for years. Just last week, we revealed that Coast Guard leaders hid yet another damning report from 2015. House lawmakers have said that the Coast Guard may have obstructed the ability of Congress to carry out constitutionally mandated oversight authority and legislation to address these issues. Next week, the Senate is set to hold a hearing after launching its own inquiry into the Coast Guard, with several whistleblowers and survivors of assault and harassment set to testify. Of course, we'll be covering that. Up next, Kevin McCarthy reportedly told Trump to F off in a phone call after being ousted as speaker, but now quite a turnaround. So much for any bad blood between Donald Trump and Kevin McCarthy. There was a report last week that the California Republican, who is soon leaving Congress, had a tense phone call with Trump hurling a swear word at him after the former president allegedly refused to help save McCarthy's speaker job. Trump was reportedly frustrated that McCarthy hadn't endorsed him. But now, bygones. Can he count on your support? Yes. That's an endorsement. I will support the president. I will support President Trump. So maybe not gushing with support, but Trump finally got what he was looking for. McCarthy said he'd even consider serving in Trump's cabinet. All right, finally tonight, move over croissants. There is a new most wanted pastry in Paris, and it's actually not French at all. It's an American crispy cream donut. Seriously, this week, the U.S. donut chain opened its first outpost in France, and the company tells CNN that 400 customers were waiting outside for opening day with some lining up the night before to snag the first few dozen freshly glazed treats. Over the next year, the chain plans to open what it calls 500 points of access for the French to load up on donuts. It is a full circle moment for the bakery. Almost 100 years ago, Krispy Kreme's founder bought the recipe for its original donut from a French chef in New Orleans. Well, thanks for being here with us tonight. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts now. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.